We're turning back to Colossians this evening. And we're going to pick up at chapter 3, verse 18. That's page 1184 in the Church Bibles. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, Provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's Word. It may be with a passage like this that it's not the best idea to advertise your topic beforehand, but our passage is about relationships, and more specifically, relationships under Christ's Lordship. All through this passage, as Paul gives instructions, he mentions the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord, for this pleases the Lord. Reverence for the Lord, working for the Lord. You will receive an inheritance from the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. You also have a master in heaven. You get the idea. Paul is talking about relationships under Christ's lordship. This is what relationships are to look like for the Christian. And this is a helpful passage as we prepare to step into a new year. All of us are involved in relationships of one kind or another. Our daily lives involve a whole web of relationships. And it's helpful to be reminded of God's calling for our relationships in 2013. Here Paul mentions three sets of human relationships, and in each case, he deals first with the person under authority, then the person in authority, although he makes it clear that even those in authority are still under Christ's authority. Maybe not all of these relationships will apply to you, but the principles Paul sets out certainly do apply to all of us. And as we read these verses, you will have noticed how countercultural most of them are. This is not the normal approach to relationships in our society. But it's important to realize that Paul's words were equally countercultural in his own time. They were just countercultural in a different way than they are today. 
Today, the countercultural idea is that some people are in authority over others. To the Colossians who first read this, the surprise would have been that Paul doesn't just speak to those in authority, husbands, parents, and masters. He speaks equally to wives, children, and slaves. He speaks to them as responsible people. He speaks to them as people who have significant roles to play in the relationships they're part of. They're not just to be acted on by others. They are to participate. That was countercultural in the first century. The Bible is always going to be countercultural. The ways in which it's countercultural will vary according to the culture it's speaking to. But God's word and God's wisdom are always going to be out of step with this world that's in rebellion against him. The way to respond to that is not to decide the Bible's out of date because it conflicts with the wisdom of our day. The way to respond is to seek to bring our relationships in line with God's eternally relevant wisdom. If what we read here conflicts with what we see on EastEnders, or if it conflicts with the laws proposed by our government, then EastEnders and our government have the problem, not God. And the first relationship Paul deals with is wives and husbands. Verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Notice this is something the wife is called to do. Paul does not speak about her, he speaks to her. He doesn't say she is to be put in submission. He calls her to actively and voluntarily submit herself. What does it mean to submit? It means to voluntarily place yourself under someone else's authority. In this case, her husband. Not, you'll notice, any and every man, but very specifically her own husband. And if we think that maybe there's something degrading in that, consider the fact that Jesus himself lives in eternal submission to his Father's authority. In terms of dignity, And divinity, Jesus is equal to his Father. But he willingly lives under his Father's authority. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, I always do what pleases my Father. In John chapter 12, whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. And in Luke chapter 2, we're told that as a boy, Jesus was obedient to Mary and Joseph. It's the same word that's translated submit here in verse 18. The Son of God shows us that there is nothing degrading about voluntary submission. The Bible insists that men and women are equal in dignity and value, just as God the Father and God the Son are equal. And alongside that equality, God has built an order of authority into human relationships. That's why after Paul has called wives to submission in verse 18, he gives a reason for it. 
it is fitting in the Lord. This is not Paul's bright idea. It's the way the Lord has set things up. It's part of the order the Creator has built into His creation. And that means the husband is called to be the leader. We'll see in a moment what kind of leader he's called to be. But verse 18 already shows us the husband is not called to be a version of Homer Simpson. He's not to be a clueless, spineless slob. He's called to have bigger priorities than food and TV. He's not called to live in the pretend worlds of pornography and video games. In the world of pornography, men pretend to love. In the world of video games, they pretend to be courageous. But God calls men out of their pretend worlds. He calls us to lead our families with real love and real courage. Unfortunately, many men seem to have taken Homer Simpson as their model, even in the church. Many churches today are asking, where are the men? We know where the men in their 60s are. They're keeping the church going. And we're hugely thankful for them. But many churches are asking, where are the younger men? And often the answer is, whatever it is they're doing, they're not leading. As with most of this teaching, the idea that men are to lead is out of step with our society. Our society has turned the husband into an object of scorn. He's a buffoon. And plenty of us play along with that. We fit in with what society expects of us. But as Christian husbands, we are called to recapture the high calling God has given us. So far, Paul has spoken directly to wives. But now he turns directly to husbands. And notice that he does not say to husbands, put your wife in her place. He does not say, remind her who's the boss. He does not say, make her submit. No, the wife has been called to voluntary submission, and now the husband is called to loving leadership. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul says to the husband, don't you worry what I've called your wife to do. You pay attention to your own responsibility. Love her and do not be harsh with her. The word love gets used in lots of different ways. So we have to ask what Paul means by love. Well, in his letter to the Ephesians, there is another passage dealing with the same subject. And that passage shows us he's not thinking of warm, affectionate feelings or sexual attraction. When he mentions love, he's thinking of sacrificial care and service. He's thinking of a concern for the wife's entire well-being. He says there, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. Christ died for his bride, the church. That's the model the husband is to follow in his love for his wife. It's to be the kind of love that lays down its life for the one it loves. If we put the command to the wife side by side with the command to the husband, we can see what a marriage under the lordship of Christ is to look like. The wife will voluntarily put herself under the authority of her husband, and he will sacrifice himself for her good. Critics of the Bible like to present the picture very differently. They talk about the Bible's commands as if the wife is to be a downtrodden doormat and the husband is to be an armchair dictator, ordering her around and treating her like a maid. And unfortunately, some Christian men seem to think that's how it should be. But it's impossible, surely, to get that picture from these verses or anywhere else in the New Testament. Of course, even the best marriages are going to fall short. All of us are selfish sinners. And both of these commands are hard for us. I think they're equally hard because they both call us to die to our selfishness. But however far short we might be, these verses give husbands and wives their goals. We are to pursue these things and grow in them by God's grace year by year. When we fail, we are to seek forgiveness and keep pursuing the goal. This is a lifetime pursuit for us. Too often Christian marriages fall into a standoff where the wife says, I'll submit when he's more loving. And the husband says, I love her when she's more submissive. But we're not to be like that. Wives, focus on being the kind of wife that's easy to love. And husbands, focus on being the kind of husband who's easy to submit to. Each of us is to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the calling God has given us. If your spouse isn't a believer, they may well not buy into this. But you can still seek to fulfill your calling. And just to be very clear, this does not mean a husband or wife should put up with physical abuse. We've said that no spouse is perfect. We can't expect perfection. But if you're in physical danger, then get out of the situation. And if there's constant mental and emotional abuse going on, don't try to soldier on by yourself. Bring it to the elders or bring it to another Christian friend you trust. These commands are not here to protect abusers on either side. And then Paul turns to another relationship. Children and parents. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. 
The word children here probably refers to children who are still growing up and still at home. That doesn't mean grown-up children have no responsibilities to their parents. But those responsibilities are different when we've left the direct care and authority of our parents. I think my target audience here is a bit thin on the ground for this verse. But let me say this. I'll not dwell on it. But notice here that children are spoken to as responsible individuals in the church. Paul doesn't speak about them. He speaks to them. He calls them to commit themselves to obeying their parents rather than trying to outwit and overcome their parents. Then notice that while verse 20 mentioned parents, verse 21 is addressed specifically to fathers. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. It may be true that in most cases the mother spends more time with the children. But Scripture gives the main responsibility for parenting to the father. The parallel passage in Ephesians gives fathers the responsibility to bring up their children in the training and instruction of the Lord. So it shouldn't be the mother who reads the story at bedtime every night. It shouldn't always be the mother who helps the children learn memory verses. It shouldn't always be the mother who tries to find a biblical answer to the tough questions children ask. It shouldn't always be the mother who deals with discipline issues. The father is to take the lead in parenting. That's the assumption that lies behind verse 21. And then the specific command here is not to embitter the children or they will become discouraged. What Paul has in mind seems to be a situation where the father is just impossible to please. Nothing the child does is ever quite right. Nothing is worthy of simple praise. There always has to be a criticism tagged on as well. When a child lives in that kind of environment, they can come to the conclusion it's useless trying to obey and honor their parents. Nothing they do ever seems good enough. A few weeks ago, some of us went to hear Rob Parsons speak. And he encouraged us to catch our kids doing something right. There are times when we have to be stern, but we mustn't take on a permanent posture of being stern and angry. Another way we can embitter and discourage our children is by making their lives all about us. We do that when we say to them, I can't believe you did that. You've let me down. You made me look bad. I'm so disappointed in you. That kind of approach makes their lives all about us. It's manipulative. It gives the impression their main purpose in life is to make us happy. But their main purpose in life is to glorify and enjoy God. 
how I might feel about their behavior is a fairly minor issue. We should never make them think it's the main issue. If we do, they'll become embittered and discouraged. We can't weigh our kids down with the burden of making us happy. That's too big a burden for a child to bear. Instead of talking about our own hurt feelings over their behavior, let's talk about how their behavior lines up or doesn't line up with God's wisdom. According to God, are they being wise or are they being foolish? What are the consequences likely to be? Surely that's more helpful than blaming them for the bad mood that I'm in. Today, there's another main way we can embitter and discourage our children. We can do it by refusing to lead in our families. Maybe for fathers today, this is an even bigger danger than being too stern and too demanding. We said earlier that Homer Simpson has become the model for many husbands today. And he seems to be the model for many fathers too. Fathers are not to be just another one of the kids. We're not to whine at our kids or pander to them or behave like them. We are to lead them with love and strength. Our kids don't need another big child in the house. They need a father. Without a father, they become embittered and discouraged. And I understand that in many families, there is no father. I understand that every father is going to be imperfect. I'm a thoroughly imperfect father. And I have three witnesses present who could testify to that. But as Christian fathers, we have a high calling from God. We're to give ourselves to pursue our calling and to grow in it. No matter what mistakes we might have made in the past. Past mistakes as Megan keeps reminding me, are not an excuse for giving up. They're not an excuse to stay detached from our children. We can ask our children to forgive us for our failures in the past. And we can recommit ourselves to pursue the fatherhood God calls us to. Finally, Paul turns to slaves and masters. When you and I hear the word slavery today, most of us probably think in our minds of slave ships. We think of people being led in chains and sold as property. The kind of slavery William Wilberforce was fighting against. Slavery that targeted a particular people group and took them from their home. But the slavery of New Testament times was often quite different from that. That doesn't mean it was a good thing, but it was different from the kind of slavery that we often think of. A good number of slaves in New Testament times had sold themselves into slavery. If you got into financial difficulties, there was no uh, government support at the time. Selling yourself into slavery was a way of solving your financial difficulties. In many cases, the slave was almost an employee, like a servant. 
He and his family were provided with housing and they were paid a wage. A large percentage of slaves were able to save money, pay off their debts, and buy their freedom again. Most slavery in New Testament times was not lifelong slavery. Nowhere near it. And often it was an arrangement that was as helpful to the slave as it was to the master. It was imperfect, yes, it needed to be changed. But in many cases, it was a reasonably satisfactory business arrangement on both sides. And in any case, Paul never gives his support to slavery. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he says to slaves, if you can gain your freedom, do so. So Paul is not a defender of slavery. But the fact is, many of the Christians he's writing to are slaves. So he directs them in how they're to live as long as they're in that situation. His bigger perspective is, aim to get out of it. But while you're in it, seek to honor God. In verse 22, Paul mentions their earthly masters. That's a reminder to them that they also have a heavenly master. And part of their obedience to that master involves obedience to the earthly authority they're under. Christians are not to be anti-authority people. Yes, sometimes we have to disobey earthly authorities in order to obey God. And authority can be abused. And sometimes authority structures are corrupt. They need to be changed. But in and of itself, authority is a good thing. We've already seen that God has built structures of authority into this world. And most of us are going to be under some kind of earthly authority. Not everyone can be king. Not everyone can be the boss. As Christians, we must be people who support structures of authority rather than grumbling about them and trying to beat the system. Assuming, of course, that those authority structures are not evil. And here Paul says that our service is to be sincere and it's to be for God's glory. In verse 22, we are to obey those in authority not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. This is a call to work with openness and integrity. It's a call to be what we appear to be, to say what we mean, not to be two-faced, not to be sucking up to the boss one minute and defying him or her behind their back the next moment. That kind of behavior is not only disrespectful to our earthly masters, it shows no reverence for the Lord who's placed us under their authority. And Paul says we are to be conscientious about our work in verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. It makes a big difference to our attitude if we think of the account we're working on or the display we're setting up or the lesson we're preparing or the deal we're making as being for the Lord. We're his ambassadors. And our approach to our work 
ultimately does good or harm to his reputation. We may work and serve for a lifetime with very little reward here on earth. But in verse 24, Paul reminds us that God's people have an eternal inheritance waiting for them. And then I think verse 25 is both an encouragement and a challenge for us. Verse 25 says, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. This is an encouragement because it tells us God will put things right in the end. The wealthy and powerful will not escape justice. But these words are also a challenge to us. We can't do wrong in our work and assume God will ignore it. Our faithfulness in our work matters. Then finally, Paul has some words for masters. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. If we ask why so much more was said to slaves than to masters, the answer is there were probably a lot more slaves than masters in the church. But there must have been at least some masters. And you'll notice Paul doesn't say to them, be a pushover. He doesn't say, let employees get away with shoddy work or insubordination. He says, show justice and fairness. Pay a fair wage. Don't try to take advantage. Demand a fair level of commitment. But don't go beyond that. Yes, legally, you might own your slaves, but don't treat them like property. Treat them with the dignity they deserve as human beings made in God's image. Because, Paul says, at the end of the day, you yourself are under authority. You have a master in heaven. Don't think you can do what you like. And we might wonder, why doesn't Paul just tell masters to release their slaves? Well, one answer is that the slaves were probably dependent on the housing and wage the master provided. We've seen that many slaves in this time entered into the arrangement voluntarily. And Paul's letter to Philemon, later in the New Testament, suggests that where possible, Paul does expect Christian slave owners to work towards freeing their slaves. When Paul sends the runaway slave Onesimus back to his Christian master Philemon, Paul writes that Philemon is to have him back no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. So the big picture is that Paul certainly is not trying to keep slavery going. But the specific point here is that those who are masters, so long as they are masters, are to treat those under them with justice and fairness. Back in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul said this, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
As those who belong to Jesus, every part of our lives is to be under his lordship. That includes our relationships. Back in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul said, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. This passage shows that setting our minds on things above will make a difference to the earthly things we're involved in. When our minds are on things above, our relationships won't be all about us anymore. They'll be all about honoring the Lord. And that means honoring him through our submission to the authority he's placed us under. And it means using the authority he's given us in a loving way. Let's pray. Father, we know our feelings. Even if not all of these relationships apply to us, and even if we're thinking of other relationships that we're a part of, we know our feelings. Maybe some of us feel our feelings very painfully tonight as we think of a particular relationship. Help us. If we need to ask for forgiveness for someone... We need to ask for forgiveness from someone. Will you give us the grace and the courage to do it? And if we are asked to give forgiveness, again, give us the grace to forgive as you have forgiven us. Give us the grace to begin again, pursuing the kind of relationships you call us to. This year, Will you help us to live to serve your majesty in all things? Give us perseverance in our service for you. Help us to persevere even as we look forward to eternal joy in your presence. Amen. We're going to ask God again.